I didn't really set out to make this my focus, but it kind of arose naturally from working with students, but also feeling like there wasn't a lot of people addressing some of the underlying worldview and apologetic issues that I think are deeply shaping the way young people today think about sexuality. And they're so subtle and they're so powerful that often we miss them and jump into what the Bible says, but don't unplug why does scripture say that and how deeply have these secular ideas shaped us. Welcome to another episode of Sex Plus Christian Parents Podcast. I'm Jason. I'm Thomas. And we're going to dive into the sexual ethic of Jesus today, which I'm really excited to dive into. It's going to be a unique conversation. It's going to be an important conversation. Before I do, at the top of this episode, I just simply need to say a few quick words about some resources that we have available. We always talk about these on the tail end of our episodes, but I... For this one episode, wanted to just make sure you know about some great resources, especially as we consider the topic of the sexual ethic of Jesus. First, if you haven't already checked out Christian Sexuality, please do so. And you can go to christian-sexuality.com to find some great resources for you as a parent or for your pastor, your church, to be able to dive into the important conversations around sex, sexuality, and gender. We also have a 10-video e-course called The Very Good Sex Talk. It's a great resource for you as a parent or maybe for grandparents to be able to dive into these conversations in your home uh, as your grandchildren are coming over to your house to be able to really allow for biblical sex education to begin and end in your home. One last thing I need to say is if you want to support us and support this podcast, you can do so by going to Patreon, check out Project 619, where you can find us there. And it's a great way for you to support the work that we're trying to do through this podcast and through the ministry. Can I get an amen, Thomas? Amen, brother. Well, hey, today's episode, it is definitely going to be uh, unique for some parents. Wouldn't you say so? Oh, absolutely. I think this is going to challenge uh, kind of a worldview that's maybe been out there for a while, but I encourage you to listen and just listen well. Yeah. Well, I want to introduce to you Sean McDowell. He's been a guest on our podcast before, and he's going to make a case not just for biblical sexual ethics, but for a sexual ethic based upon the teachings of Jesus. Check it out. One of the reasons I approached it this way, instead of just saying the biblical sexual ethic, is because people in our culture tend to perceive the Bible differently than Jesus. For a lot of people, the Bible is, well, it's it's antiquated and doesn't matter anymore, and there's bigoted teaching, but everybody still wants the teachings of Jesus. So I think the Bible and the view of Jesus line up, but I frame this way to say, all right, how does the most influential moral reformer in history think about sex and marriage. So I went through the New Testament. I read the entire New Testament with as fresh of eyes as I could, just asking the question, what does the what what does the New Testament teach and model about sexuality? And then I went back to the gospels again very carefully and just started to notice a few things that Jesus teaches. Number one is Jesus has tenderness and compassion for those who are caught in sexual sin. I mean, you don't see this vitriol towards the woman at the well like you see against the religious rulers. He speaks truth to her, but it's clear that he shows compassion to her. He shows care for her and a tenderness. You also see that in the story of Luke, the woman, you know, the sinful woman who comes to Jesus. So number one, Jesus has a lot of compassion for those who are caught in sexual sin. 
Uh, second, sexual ethics matter to Jesus. Now, he wasn't just teaching on sexual ethics. He talks about poverty. He talks about a whole bunch of different issues, but he addresses it. If I remember off the top, had at least 21 times in different teachings that's recorded. He talks about pornea, sexual immorality, how important that is. For example, in Mark 7, along with other sins, and in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10, he talks about marriage and goes back to the creation account. So sex, love, and relationships matter to Jesus. Um, another thing that we see of Jesus, and I, this is actually one of the most interesting ones to me, is Jesus does not move in a more liberalizing or progressive direction on sexuality. If anything, he moves in a more conservative direction. And this is important because we're often told that Jesus just loved everybody and he accepted people where they were and just totally showed grace. Well, that's true to a degree. But when you look at two examples, for example, when Jesus asked uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about adultery. He goes a more conservative direction and says it's a matter of the heart that can be kind of adultery. Like he went further than a lot of people in that day would have gone. Then in Matthew 19, when he's talked about marriage, he goes back to the creation account and gives an even more conservative position about what is permissible with divorce. So there's more things that Jesus gave, but as loving and gracious and tender as he was, he doesn't move in this progressive direction. He just doesn't. He go, he, In fact, he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. One thing I love here is that Sean rightly views Jesus as loving yet firm. I think in our culture, we make Jesus out to be this this gentle guy, like rubbing a lamb, right? All <laughs> soft and sweet. And when you, when you read the Gospels, Jesus is kind and caring, but he is firm. He is decisive. Yeah. He's authoritative, right? And and we've got to wrestle with that. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I do love the picture of how he, he uh, Sean, talks about Jesus being tender and compassionate but that sexual ethics matter and, and that he's firm in those issues when they are brought up, when he discusses them. By the way, we, we do live in a culture that talks about how even church culture that sometimes says that Jesus did not talk about sex. That's just flat out wrong. Right. Uh, actually, what he does is he raises the bar. Sean will talk about that. But I, I yeah, I there was a book I read in college called The Jesus I Never Knew. Yeah. And it was it was a great book. But something that has always stood out to me from that book that I read in college over 20 years ago, and you know, it, 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 I date myself. That's great. Uh, <laughs> but but it, it, uh, there was this moment where Philip Yancey, the author, says that um, if Jesus was fully God and fully human, he would have experienced emotion. He would have experienced the 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 array of emotions that we experience as humans more fully than any other human that ever existed. And so, why wouldn't Jesus have this embodiment of his sexuality in some way if he is fully human and fully God. So I, I love the the way in which Sean brings about this dynamic of Jesus being a sexual being. Now, I know that this can be scandalous, right? Like this, this can be a little bit like, I, I don't know, but I just really love the way he talks about this and how Jesus was probably tempted in every way we were. 
Yeah, Jason, if I can even take that a little further, scripture tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin, right? That's Hebrews 4, 15. And so we really got to wrestle, uh, not just with what Sahan says, but what scripture tells us about Jesus being fully God and fully man. One of the opening lines of that chapter says, Jesus was a sexual human being. I think I've gotten more questions on that line than any other line in the book because it's somewhat jarring because we kind of think of Jesus in an asexual way. He just walked around. It's almost like he floated on air and he just really wasn't tempted that deeply or maybe just for a season when he was in the desert that's recorded at the beginning of the Gospels. But he certainly didn't experience any kind of sexual temptation or other real deep temptations. And the problem is we emphasize the deity of Jesus, which is totally true and important, and we miss the depth of his humanity. So the problem with that is then we don't really relate to who Jesus is in our personal lives. So in that chapter I unpack, I'm like, Jesus was a sexed human being. He was a male. And of course, the point is not that males are more important than females. That is not the point. The point we know is God made us male and he made us female. And Jesus comes down as a sexed being. So one of the reasons I talk about this is we tend to talk about, at least in the past, sex is just a physical act that somebody does. And we miss that there's a sexuality component in the sense of being male and female in all of our relationships. So how I relate to my mom is different than how I relate to my dad. How I relate to my sons is different than how I relate to my daughter. And that's because we are sexual beings. So that chapter is meant to just people take a step back and go, wait a minute. When Hebrews talks about how Jesus was tempted in every way and yet without sin, it doesn't explicitly say Jesus experienced sexual temptation. But he was a man and he had close women followers. So I think that's a very reasonable understanding that helps us, I think, in some ways better relate to who Jesus really was and is. Again, really appreciate the way that Sean is laying this out, uh, specifically in his book, Chasing Love, where we're getting this from. But one of the things I I, uh, like even more than him just speaking about Jesus as a sexual human being is the dynamic of singleness. Jesus was single <laughs> and yeah. and I and all the conversations we have about single we sometimes talk about Paul we'll, we'll, we'll point to other yeah. characters in the Bible but we often forget that the creator of this universe God Jesus lived his life here on earth as a single human being yep and there is so much to that fact that we often fail to engage address or speak about i think you're completely correct if you if you watch jesus and say he is our model and our example and he glorifies the father to the fullness that includes all of him which includes his singleness and so i think that should hopefully take that stigma away that we've talked about plenty of time on this podcast of singleness going this might be a more accurate reflection of godliness what i mean heavenly being living all those things which we just oh we don't wrestle with enough that's right that's right that's why i love how sean wrestles with this and engages in this conversation
I wish this was an idea I came up with myself and could could get credit for, but this came from uh, Christina Hitchcock's book on uh, on singleness. And she made this point and it just jumped out to me. I thought, wow, she's right. That scripture teaches there's no marriage in heaven, Jesus said. Why? Well, sex is reserved for marriage. And in marriage, there's one purpose is unity, but we'll unite apart from marriage in a deep way. And the other purpose of marriage is procreation. And we won't be having kids in heaven. Well, if, if there's no marriage in heaven, then how could sing- singleness in one sense is a state now that will be similar in some regards to the state that we'll have in heaven. Now, how is that the case? Remember when Jesus told his mother and brother and sisters are out are outside waiting for him and he goes, who is my mother and brother and sister? And he points to those who do the will of his father. Jesus redraws family lines, not just around biology, but more vertically to those who are a part of the kingdom of God and ultimately the church. Marriage in this life is going to end. In heaven, we relate directly to God and we relate directly to other people apart from the institution of marriage. So now in a sense, although we don't do a great job in the church of building these kind of relationships as a whole, singleness now is anticipating in heaven the kind of relationships that we will have directly with the body of Christ and directly with God. So there's something beautiful about it that we often miss in the present that anticipates our state in the future when there is no more marriage. All right, for all of our married couples listening, that might have rocked you a bit, right? I know (laughs) if my wife's listening to that, she's going, wait, what do you mean I'm not married to you in heaven? But we have to wrestle with this reality, right? What does scripture tell us? And Luke is a perfect place. Uh, The Gospel of Luke, where Jesus talks about they're neither married nor given in marriage so what does that then say well it's not that marriage is bad i don't think that's what sean was getting at but it's really focusing on singleness and just the concept the idea that it is pointing towards something he used the word anticipating something which means we can also rejoice and anticipate what god is doing later on in the future ah so good i you know the one thing that i was thinking about in the midst of this even as we're for parents that are listening to this for the first time that that might be thinking, gosh, I, I, um, I this is such a great point. We can easily just move as quickly to making singleness an idol as we have done with marriage. That's good. And so I I think that we've got to be able to balance this conversation out with our kids. Our kids are are younger. Um, and one of the things I was thinking about is, is, you know, we've talked a lot about, well, when you get married, but one of the things too that I'm really trying to to make sure I include in my lexicon, or, or uh, I always say "called to marriage," that's really kind of the language I'm trying to use when I talk about marriage. But I'm also trying to talk about, or if you're called to singleness and the beauty of singleness, right. I think being able to provide and weave both of those conversations into our daily conversations or weekly conversations or as they come up as we're speaking to our children, I think can be really helpful. I think that so often what we do is we talk a lot about marriage and we lump on singleness. And I think that what could happen, because we are talking much more about singleness in the church, is that we could talk more about that than marriage. And there's always this balance, right? Balance, yep. I, there, there is this this give and this take, and we have to be able to do both. We have to be able to engage both. We have to look at how both really are a calling in many ways. So where are you being called and helping our children navigate this calling in their own life? 
Uh, Sean actually dives into this a little bit more with just, you know, how do we have these conversations in our home, which I think hits upon the practical that we're always trying to get to. I've done a couple things. Number one is we have some friends who are single and I've had them over to our house at times for dinner because I want my kids to meet people who are single and who are serving the Lord and just see that this is a brother or sister in Christ as a model and even as a hero that they could look up to. The other way is just to go to scripture at times. I've shared this with my kids. You go to Matthew 19, where Jesus talks about marriage and singleness. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul actually says, I wish many of you were like me being single. I mean, that's not the endorsement of marriage that we heard from the you know the moral majority for years that just said it's all about the nuclear family. Like Paul has a little bit of a different view in 1 Corinthians 7. That doesn't mean the nuclear family is not important, but it means that there's a component maybe we've missed. So I think relationships and scripture together are two of the best ways to just bring that balance with our kids. So when we're teaching our kids that singleness is a viable option, uh, we're not just teaching them that isolation is an option. Something that we often speak about is that we hurt in isolation, but Mm. we heal in community. That's good. Right? Like like the way that, that Jesus was breaking down the family as was spoken about earlier, it wasn't about being alone, right, or alone. Uh, it, it was about still being in community, but redefining what that community is, what right. family is, how does that look? And I think that that is, is an incredibly important thing, especially when you look at Gen Z. Because here's what's so beautiful about Gen Z. We can dive into a lot of different stats and, and other information, and we're going to do that in some future episodes because I think it's important for uh, parents to just really understand the kids that they're working with, that, that, that are their children, Absolutely. right? But one thing that I love about Gen Z is their willingness to go deep. I mean, they're 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 kind of wired for community in a way that no other generation has been wired because they're willing to ask really good questions. When I speak to a youth group or even in a school or I'm just simply engaging with students, the questions I get asked now are the questions that those in their early 30s are just starting to ask. Mm-hmm. So their willingness to go deep is is more real than ever before and i think that as parents we can understand and lead our children into deeper more meaningful relationships because of that desire that is present within this generation which i think allows for them to have a more intimate relationship with their creator the opposite of surface relationships which often characterize this generation when you're a friend with somebody uh that might not even be somebody you know well. I was sharing this example with my kids recently about how this fellow I met was telling me about his best friend and I stopped. I'm like, this kid was 16. I said, have you ever met your best friend? And he goes, no, we just play video games online. And I thought, wow, you can now in some circles be a best friend with somebody that you've never met in person. So that's not to downplay the significance of that relationship to him, but I think we all would recognize something's missing there when you can't see and touch and look into the eyes of somebody else physically as well. So that's an example I just shared with my kids. I'm like, what do you think? Can you be a best friend with somebody on that level of relationship? What does it mean to be a best friend? So I just press my my kids and those to go deeper in a sense of what does it mean to really know somebody? 
What does it actually mean to be known by somebody else? Give me an example of a shallow relationship. Give me an example of a deeper relationship and just press them to go beyond, well, we're friends on TikTok and we're friends on this social media app, which is fine in itself, but are they opening themselves up to intimacy and closeness and really knowing people? That's the kind of conversation we have to have with kids to push back on some of their expectations they probably get from our culture about what real relationship entails. But I would say there's a component of relationships where we love people with body and we love people with soul. There is something missing in a relationship when we can't be bodily present with somebody. Now, does that mean there can't be intimacy and there's not value in other forms of relationships? No, I think there can be intimacy and I think there is value, but a digital like cannot replace a physical hug. (laughs) There's something about God making us embodied beings that we most feel known and know other people with a kind of bodily presence as well. All right. So once again, this may be kind of new for you, or you may be wrestling with what does it mean to have deep relationships and intimate relationships and, and trying to figure out then how do I teach that to my kids? I want to take a deep breath. Okay. This is a journey. You don't have to nail it all here. Just once again, listen closely. A good resource that I would recommend that I've enjoyed is a book called The Search to Belong from Joseph Myers. It's it's dynamite because what he'll do is he'll talk through kind of four spaces of belonging, the public space, the social space, the personal space and the intimate space. And really what it says is you have to have relationships at all levels, right? The public space is where you can enjoy people's company without really knowing who they are, right? That's like being at a sporting event or at a dinner. You can enjoy the moment, but you don't have to know a whole lot about the individual next to you. The social space is where you start learning snapshots of people. And this is where you decide if you want to move closer to them or not. You need that small talk. You need those snapshots to see if you're compatible. The personal space is where you start revealing more of who you are, but it's not super raw or intimate or naked yet. That's the intimate space. And I think what we often do, Jason, when we have this conversation is we say, and and Sean didn't do this, but we say deep or intimate and thinking every relationship has to be in that intimate space. And I want to say not really. We need a variety of relationships and a variety of spaces so we can feel connected with different people at different levels. Teaching our kids this helps them not call everyone a best friend or not assume everyone has to be their best friend, but recognize they can have a variety of relationships. That's so good. I I don't think that we can have... We can only handle so many intimate relationships. Absolutely. Right? And so that is something that being able to teach our kids that very, teach ourselves that. That, right. Is so very, very important because you and I both know being in leadership, one of the things that can often happen is you you have a large circle, but the circle has to get smaller and smaller and smaller because when you really look at intimate relationships, there is a pouring out that happens. There is a pouring in, obviously, or at least you would hope, but there is a big pouring out. And so they are, they can be draining, right? But it can also be a beautiful thing that gives life. Right. Uh, you, you know, something I, I uh, made sure I asked Sean when we were having this conversation was, what do you do if you do feel overwhelmed in all of these conversations? Not just the bodily presence, the conversation around that, and how do we define intimacy? How do we engage that with our children? But just even the conversations around sex and sexuality. And I appreciate what he had to say. Well, first off, I would say is if you're a parent and you feel that way, you're not the only person who feels overwhelmed. 
I write in this stuff, I research on it. And at times my wife look at each other and we're like, we don't even know how to deal with this scenario and need to call somebody else for wisdom, often my dad. So all of us right now have a sense of feeling overwhelmed and getting challenged with questions we haven't considered before. So you're not alone with that feeling, but don't let that a feeling affect you from having some productive conversations with your kids just because you may not be able to answer all of the questions. Every study I've seen, Jason, consistently shows that parents are the most significant influencers in the life of this generation. The latest Barna study with Impact 360 showed that this generation has lost trust in institutions like police officers, healthcare, etc. But they trust older generations more than any social institution. They want wisdom, they want guidance, but we have to be careful how we do it and wise how we do it. The right setting, the right time, and the right way. So one thing to avoid is if you start engaging your kids and they say something that surprises you, like they say, hey, I'm actually pro-choice, or I think same-sex marriage is fine, or whatever it is. Like we've got to train ourselves not to freak out and to just stay calm and not be judgmental that is a turnoff for many in this generation. Um, second is just be willing to have a conversation. The first thing I would say is if you haven't had this conversation, just go to your son or daughter and say, you know what? I want to pick you up after school, take you for coffee. And I just want to share with you some things from my life and story that I've never really told you before. And you don't have to share everything. And don't be discouraged if you feel like in your story you've blown it. Kids are not expecting their parents to be perfect. But if you share some things from your story about your relationships, successes, and failures, do it lovingly, this generation is going to listen. They're going to listen and take it to heart. The other suggestion that might work is I'm always looking for opportunities to talk with my kids, just practical opportunities. I don't think we're called to just have the talk. So it's been a couple years now. My son wanted to see this movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, about the rock band Queen. And uh, it was PG-13, had some content. I didn't love messages about sexuality, but looked at it. I'm like, I think this is fine. So I said, I'll take you and a friend whose parent approves, and I'll uh, I'll pay for everything. If when we're done, we just come back to the dinner table, and I just want to know what you think about it. I'm not going to lecture you. I just want to know what you think about and see in this movie. He goes, sure. So go to the movie, bring a friend. We come back, sit down, probably 30 minutes. And I was like, what'd you like in the movie? What was your favorite part? What'd you, what'd you think the movie was promoting? As Christians, what can we agree with in this film? Are there any areas in this film that we might take issue with? What do you think the message about sex and sexuality was in this film? And we just had a conversation. So don't let failure stop you from doing it. If you're honest and share your story, if you look for opportunities and probably take a long-term view, if you've never had this conversation before, and maybe if the relationship is struggling, it might take some time to get there, but just take baby steps and start opening the conversation. So for some of you that have been listening to our podcast for a while, 
Some of what Sean just shared might sound familiar. He he did talk about this in an earlier podcast. So so that might be something that that does strike a chord as oh I, I think I remember this and and I really appreciate how he shares the story. And we also just uh, as reference talk about media discernment in some of our other podcast episodes when we had Cutter Calloway. I would highly recommend going back listening to that if you've not already done so. I want to step back in, though, to the conversation with Sean as he talks more specifically about his book and and ways in which the book, Chasing Love, can aid parents in these conversations. You know, what's interesting is the very first student book I wrote in 2006 called Ethics, I was like, you know what, I'm going to come up with 10 chapters because 10 is a good normal number. When I went to write this book, I was like, wait a minute, why would I do 10 chapters? I started thinking as a parent how it would help me. I'm like, you know what I'm doing? I'm going to come up with 30 chapters so I could give parents like the one month challenge. And these are short chapters, like four to five pages. And what they could do is actually have their son or daughter read it and talk about it. Or I've had a number of parents actually tell me, pastor emailed me today and he said, I'm reading it with my son each night for one month and talking about this together. I thought that's just beautiful because a lot of you'll notice in the book when I ask questions like how far is too far or modesty I don't give students a specific line what I do is I give them principles and I say now take this and go talk this through with the adults in your life and apply it to your situation one reason I do that is to avoid legalism and the second is that I want students to get wisdom outside of the book and talk about this with other people. So, you know, kids are different. Uh, like with my daughter at work to have her read it and I bought her a, a pair of shoes. Like we went to coffee for an hour and a half and just talked about it. That worked for her. Uh, others will be more like what I described earlier, which is just reading a chapter with them nightly. So it's up to the parents, but the bottom line is it's it's short. There's quick chapters And it's meant to create the conversation, not just be read entirely in isolation. As a writer, I give a ton of thought into not only like individual stories and chapters, but the structure of the book, I think is instructive. And I'm certainly not saying this is the only way to do it or necessarily the best way to do it. But as a parent in my work with students, I broke it up into three parts for a reason. The first third of the book, I'm basically stripping away what I think are faulty, secular ideas our kids have imbibed, almost like a fish in water without realizing it. So we have this view of love that's not really scriptural, but we don't realize it. We have this view of freedom that's much more secular than it is biblical without realizing it. So the first part of the book is really trying to strip away these faulty ideas. Then the middle of the book, is like, okay, now that we understand that God's design matters, I talk about God's purpose for sex, the purpose for singleness, the purpose for marriage. And then the last third of the book are some of the questions you're asking about, which is like, okay, what about sex abuse? What about uh, cohabitation? What about divorce? What about the LGBTQ conversation? So it's arranged that way intentionally to strip away faulty ideas, replace it with what's biblical, and then apply that biblical truth to some of the more thorny issues of today. So I would discourage parents from just jumping straight to the transgender question and reading that one as relevant as it is. 
and making sure that at the beginning in their conversation, in their teaching, students even understand how to approach what it means to be human, that we're embodied beings, what God's design for sex is, what it means to love people, then it'll make a lot more sense. I don't know, but let's find out together is one of my favorite phrases to give a parent. You might know the answer, but sometimes just simply going on a journey with your son or your daughter can be one of the most rewarding things for you and for them. I really believe that when we find out information together, when we're reading a book together, when we're dialoguing about something that's happened together, there is a richness that can't be found that's separated, that that like, here, you go read this, I'm going to read this, we'll come back together. Actually doing it together, the journey in and of itself can sometimes be the destination, can be the gift. And so we need to be able to understand that as we are looking to journey with our children, or at least share with them knowledge. And knowledge often comes from the journey. And for church leaders and pastors, I think a similar word goes for us is that we also have to be on a journey of learning, of reading, and being able to make it clear and plain for the people we lead, right? We need to be comfortable having this conversation because it's a biblical conversation. We should be the ones to help provide tools so families can be as successful as they ought to around this topic of sex and sexuality. Well, to close our episode, Sean shared some thoughts and ideas for pastors looking to engage in this conversation with their congregation. A couple things I would include is I would talk a lot about grace and forgiveness. That's super important today. Um, another thing I would talk about is, is where do we begin a question of sexual ethics? And I think ultimately it comes back to the character of God. So I would start theologically, and it's always intrigued me why the temptation in the garden was not to eat fruit. You know, why didn't God say, Adam, don't kill Eve? Like that'd be a lot easier than a fruit which is meant to be eaten, put in the center and told not to eat it. And part of it is because God is inviting us into a relationship. Given that he's infinite and we're finite, there's going to be points where we don't understand and we have to trust him. So I would start with a lot about grace and forgiveness I would ultimately root a sexual ethic in God's character and his God is good and his commands are for our good. That's one of the things I'm thankful my parents taught me is they would say sex is a beautiful gift from the Lord. God's commands are positive and we're only set free when we live our lives according to his design. So I guess to answer your question, things I would include again would be I'd talk a lot about grace and forgiveness. I'd root a sexual ethic in God's good character and his good commands. And like Jesus in Matthew 19 and Paul in Romans 1, I would point back towards God's creation account in Genesis as being the norm for how we're supposed to live. And then I would get to all the thorny issues at the end, again, like the transgender question, um, because sometimes people say, why are Christians always talking about what they're against rather than what they're for? Well, let's talk about what we're for and then get to some of the issues where we differ widely with the culture. And you know what else I would do? I probably also would do a Q&A and I would take questions however they could and I would answer the straightforward, toughest questions that people ask in front of the church. Now, I would let the church know this and say probably 11, 12 is the youngest I would have in here, but I would submit and allow people to submit their toughest questions. 
and I would just answer them as best I could with poise without freaking out because that creates a culture that says, hey, we're not afraid of these questions and we can think biblically about all of them. And thinking biblically is our goal. Thinking like Jesus is our goal. And I'm so glad that you're on this journey, this podcast, this episode today as we're learning together what it means to parent our children in these conversations. Thank you so much for being a listener of Sex Plus Christian Parents Podcasts. I'm Jason. And I'm Thomas. Thanks for being with us.